I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the New Testament book of Jude. It's just before the book of Revelation. So if you're struggling to find it, go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and go back one. Jude's a very short book of the Bible. So Jude chapter one, beginning at verse one. Jude chapter one, we'll begin at verse one, where Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, who are beloved in God the Father and kept safe for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain intruders have stolen in among you people who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege now of studying it together. And God, as I stand before these, your people, this is your church. I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jude, it's a very short book of the Bible. It's one of those books of the Bible that's often neglected, maybe except for the benediction. Those last few verses of Jude are often used as benedictions by clergy and people in the life of leading worship. But it's a short book. It's just one chapter and you can read through the whole book in one very short setting. So if you're looking to impress your friends and to be able to go this morning or today in my devotional time, I read an entire book of the Bible. Jude would be a good one of those since it's such a short place. But Jude, Jude is actually an interesting character. Jude or Judas or Judah, depending on the translation from the Greek or the Bible that you have, is the brother of James, which would mean then he is also the brother of Jesus. So as you hear this, think about that this is the younger brother of Jesus who's writing to you. See him in Matthew 13, for example, verse 55, that he's there present with Jesus. But Judah's humble. He doesn't start out by going, this is Jude, the little brother of Jesus. Actually, he doesn't even refer to himself as an apostle, but he approaches the church as one of them. I'm one of you. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. But Jude, when he writes this, is clearly dealing with a problem. He shares very openly at the very beginning, I had another purpose for writing to you. I was so eager to write to you and I wanted to share with you about this salvation that we share together to tell you about this God who so loved the world, who rescues us, saves us, redeems us. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. But instead, I need to appeal to you to contend for the faith. I need to share with you, there, there's a problem that is so, so huge of a problem that we have to address it now. I wanted to write to you about salvation, but salvation is the very thing right now 
that is in jeopardy. It's the very thing. So I, I'm writing to you to entreat you, to beg you, to plead with you, to encourage you to contend for the faith that has been entrusted to you, to me, to us together as the church. See, one of the things Jude's telling us is that there were some false teachers who had come onto the scene in this early church. Some false teachers who began to teach something so contrary to the gospel and to the faith. Now, having false teachers is not a new thing. Paul had to deal with it. When you read 2 Peter, for example, you'll see that 2 Peter actually uses Jude in the case where he's having to deal with false teachers. And Jude lays out in verse 4 some of the problems. They're perverting the grace of our God. These teachers are actually perverting this understanding of grace and what God has done in our lives. And as you've heard me teach before, I believe that grace is God's love and action they're perverting what God's love and grace actually is all about. They're promoting immorality. They're leading people into licentiousness. They're leading people into a life that is so contrary to the holy life that God has called us to. And he says they're actually denying our only master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Dr. Fiend Perkins, for example, says that God's authority is at stake in the challenge that's posed by these false teachers. I mean, they're actually leading the church, the people of God, right back into a sinful state, but with a little God talk around it. See, I think one of the problems of false teachers and false teaching, and we deal with it today, but the challenge of false teaching is when we take our human fleshly desires and we wrap them up with a little God talk. We kind of uh, give permission and anointing of it through a little God talk. And that seems to make it okay. Well, that's very appealing to the culture. That's very appealing to the world. It was in Jude's day. It is in our day. So you're telling me because of God's grace, I can just kind of go on with what I want to do, what I want to be, how I want to be. And that's okay. And it's so tempting because it allows us to continue our human desires, our fleshly desires, while at the same time feel like that we've kind of got this divine protection over us. And it's a challenge. And the admonition then that Jude is sharing with the church is to contend for the faith. Verse 3 again, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary. This is so vital. I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Now that word contend is actually a, an athletic word. It's a metaphor that he's kind of drawing out there. It's epagonizomai, which is that word that it means to struggle with. It, it means to contend for. Now, when you break that word down in the midst of it, you may have heard in the midst of that Greek word is the word where we get agonize. 
He's saying, I want you to agonize for the faith, to contend for the faith, to wrestle for the faith. This is so vital that I need you to get in and fight for the faith. I need you to stand up for Jesus Christ. I need you to stand up for the gospel. I need you to agonize to contend for the faith. This faith that was entrusted to you, to the saints, which means those who are made holy by God's grace, to the church. And today that's us. So today Jude looks at us and said, I need you to contend for the faith. I need you to agonize for the faith. I need you to fight and struggle and wrestle and move for the faith. In other words, he said, you cannot afford to sit back on this. You cannot. The faith and the church, all the gospel cannot afford for you, the people of God, to sit back and do nothing. You must address the issue that is there. Donald Sr., another biblical scholar, says that the purpose of the letter is an urgent appeal to the recipients to contend for the faith in the face of dangerous and influential wandering teachers whose unrestrained immorality threatens to seduce the community. This immorality is threatening to seduce the church itself. And you can't sit back. You've got to contend for the faith. Fiend Perkins again says that we know the feeling when we read the story of a particularly grim or senseless crime, brutal attacks on young children or on the elderly fill us with a sense of horror, anger, and often evoke cries for the death penalty or worse. She said, Jude's examples are calculated to provoke a similar outrage in its audience. The church is called to be outraged and to contend for the faith. And Jude shares with us, this is not a new thing. Now, if we read the whole book, and again, it won't take you long to read it. It's just the one chapter. But he goes on to remind us of how God has punished and cast out those who have abandoned the faith, those who've led other people astray throughout the years. He gives three examples, if you keep reading. The examples of the children of Israel coming out of the Exodus and how many of them were unfaithful in the wilderness. Or the rebellious angels who tried to take over the throne of God or stepped out of the bounds that God had given to them. He reminds of Sodom and Gomorrah and their, their, their attempt to, to go after the angels of God and, and the destruction and the, the crime against them that they were wanting to commit. And it talks about false teachings. They're just leading, they're leading the church away from what the church has been called to believe. Paul, Paul dealt with it in Romans chapter 6. There's some beautiful writings there when Paul says, for example, in Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who've died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? And if you skip down in Romans 6 to verse 13, Paul goes on to say, So do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather 
offer yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, known as the father of Methodism, talks about scriptural holiness and how we're to live with scriptural holiness, but also to spread it then across the land. And what he means by that is holiness, he said, of heart and life. It's our heart. This is what we believe. It's, It's what's deep inside of us. And then holiness of our lives. We're called to live in a way that expresses holiness and righteousness to God. Not that we're perfect by any means, but that is the goal. The goal is not to look for permission to remain in our human fleshly sinfulness, but rather to desire the Spirit of God to inspire and empower us to be the people that God is calling us to be. We are called to be set apart. The word church means to be set apart. And we're called by God to live for a different standard, a different holiness. I've shared with you before about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's an amazing theologian that I love to study and read. He was a German theologian, lived during the time of World War II. He was vocal against the Nazis. He helped many of the Jews escape the Holocaust and is eventually executed because of his faith and because of his work to try to protect others and is willing to call out what was happening. I wrote this amazing little book called The Cost of Discipleship. And listen to some of the things that he says about cheap grace, which is the temptation that many of us want. And it's what Jude is dealing with as well. The desire for cheap grace. I want to experience this grace. I just don't want to have to respond to it or do much. So Bonhoeffer writes, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Now hold on to that. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We're fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism, without church discipline. Communion, without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. All for sin could not atone. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. That was the heresy. 
He goes on to say, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. When you listen to so much of the theology of the church today, that seems to be what we are hearing. This desire for a cheap grace, this desire that will allow us just to live our lives however we want to, but claim this God coating over us that protects us. N.T. Wright, the great biblical scholar, says Jude is clear and explicit about the twin dangers the church now faces. Dangers which we can hardly hear without realizing that this letter is very contemporary. On the one hand, people are transforming God's grace into licentiousness, filthiness in other words. On the other hand, they are denying the one and only master, our Lord Jesus Christ. Wright goes on to say, find people who today are saying that God loves everyone exactly as they are, so everyone must stay exactly as they are, doing all the things they want to do because God is so full of generosity that obviously He wants them to do that. Find such people, He said, and you found those of whom Jude is writing. Find people who today are saying that Jesus is one religious leader or teacher among others, that there might well be a variety of paths up the mountain of which Jesus' path is only one. That it is important not to make exclusive claims or will become arrogant. Find such people, he says, and you found those of whom Judah is writing. That's our challenge today. It's right now in front of us. Jude is writing as much today as he was when he wrote to the early church. It's not something new. Paul dealt with it. Peter dealt with it. Jude dealt with it. We deal with it today. The challenge and the temptation that I think Satan loves of taking the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ and wrapping it up with a little God talk and then free us to do whatever we want to do without any sense of discipleship. It's our culture today. We see it in our denomination today. It just seems to be everywhere around us. So what do we do? Well, if you skip down to verse 20 of Jude, Jude says this, But you, beloved, build yourself up on your most holy faith. Pray. In the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are wavering. Have mercy on them. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. In other words... This is a time for us as Christians to grow deeper in our faith, 
to, to study the scripture. One of the challenging things is when we hear false teaching is do we even recognize it? Do we know our faith enough? Do we know the scripture enough? Do we know what the gospel is, the good news of God is enough that we can tell when it's had a little twist to it? The hardest kind of lie to actually bring out to bear is a, a lie that's truth with a twist. And the only way we know is, as Jude says, to build yourself up in your own faith. It's why we push so much, why I encourage so much Bible studies, life groups, other things that you can do virtually or in person, but to get into the scripture, dig in there and know your faith so you can know when it's been twisted. I was actually in a conversation not long ago. It was an interview conversation with someone and, and they were talking about the gospel and how to sow seeds of the gospel, to plant seeds of the gospel, to nurture the gospel. And, and then I said, so how would you define the gospel? And I was amazed they had used that word so much, but didn't have the ability, did not have the ability to define the gospel, which means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that in spite of our brokenness, God wouldn't leave us alone, but that, that God proved his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life, that God loves you so much, not only did he die for you, but he promises never to abandon you, but to lead you, guide you, be present with you and help you grow in your relationship with him. The gospel, you've got to get into it. So you know when it's been twisted. And pray in the Holy Spirit where hit your knees and ask God to reveal to you who is God calling you to be and what is God's truth. To keep yourselves in the love of God, in the presence, in the communion, the fellowship of God and one another, growing in the love of God. Waiting patiently, he says, for God's mercy that comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, and rescue, rescue those who are in danger. Part of the role of the church is not only to know the gospel, but if there are people among us who are starting to fall away, who are starting to believe these false teachings, to teach them, to reach out to them, to love them in the way that God loves them and rescue them, he says. Fiend Perkins said, leaders must be careful not to abandon the salvation that God has extended to them, and they may even win back some of those who've been led astray by false teaching. Don't abandon what God has done for you, but you may even be able to win back some of those who've been led astray by false teaching. Jude writes to the church of his day, but he writes to us. And he says to us, contend for the faith. 
There are so many people today who who want us to choose and to accept and and just to go along with a very cheap, generic, counterfeit, knockoff form of Christianity when God is calling us to the real thing, a much deeper relationship. And we're in a time, Jude reminds us, when we must contend for the faith. N.T. Wright again described the message of Jude this way, which speaks to us. He said, the very heart of Christian faith and practice is under direct attack. And unless those who are grasped by the truth of the gospel do their best to maintain it, those who are heading in another direction are going to take a lot of people with them. Now remember, that's to evoke horror, as Fiend Perkins said. The thought that if we do not maintain the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been entrusted to us, those who are heading in a different direction are going to take a lot of people with them. No wonder... No wonder Jude says, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write an appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Will you pray with me? God, you call us to be the church. And by your grace, you have given us this good news of Jesus Christ. By your grace, you have saved us, rescued us. You have so loved us that you've offered your only begotten. And God, Jude reminds us of the danger that that there are people who are taking what you have said and done and giving it a twist. They've given it a twist where it's no longer even the good news of Jesus Christ. It's so dangerous and can lead to the destruction of so many, can lead to the destruction of the church. And the church, that's not the building, that's your people. It can lead to the destruction of your very people. So Jude calls on us to contend for the faith You call upon your church to contend for the faith. And God, we pray that we, your church, will now rise up. We know we're countercultural, but help us to rise up and contend for the faith that can save the world by your love, your grace, and your call to scriptural holiness. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.